So if you were embedded in a community where everything, you know, everyone thought it's important to do, you know, like for example, social distancing, and you also thought it was important to social distancing, then you like there was this kind of reinforcing effect and people were more likely to follow. Uh, on the other hand, in communities where, you know, like there was a lot of disbelief or, you know, like uh, some people were for, some people were against it, then you know, like, if you thought it was important, you were actually much less likely to act on it, right? So there was this kind of reinforcing, you know, like um, effect between, you know, individuals and what was going on in the community. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. And today I've got a very special guest coming in from Rio de Janeiro is Dr. Ron Fisher. Uh, welcome, Ron. Hey, yeah. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. So I, I found you online and I've looked at some of your articles and I want to um, approach a pretty sensitive topic um, today, but from a, a different perspective of um, coming from your skill set and background to explore COVID, not so much the virus and the vaccines, how they work or if they don't, but more about how we landed our decisions to, to engage in health behaviours or not around COVID and how maybe COVID itself could influence um, our values and behaviours. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's something a little bit new for me, so hopefully I get the, the questions in the right um, zone for you to be able to answer. But before we dive into it all, perhaps if you could give a bit of a, a background. You're, you've really been a, a jet setter, it sounds, over your, your lifetime from Germany to now Rio de Janeiro. So a bit about your background and, and what you've been focusing on your research. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so I'm a psychologist by training, and um, I'm I was born in in Germany, the eastern part. Then you know, like I was very happy when when the wall came down and we had a chance to actually leave. So uh, very soon moved to the UK, did my PhD there in a very interdisciplinary um, environment. So I have uh, a lot of interests across different disciplines, and um, you know, like. Moved down to New Zealand, working in a psychology department there um, at Victoria University, but um, also now being affiliated with an institute here, actually a health uh, research institute here in Brazil, in, in Rio. And, um, you know, like, so, you know, like, it's actually really, really exciting to talk to you and, and to your audience, you know, like translating some of the work in, in psychology and behavioral sciences and, um, you know, like what you might take away from it uh, for, you know, like your your practice. Yeah, thanks. And what did you do your PhD on and what do you um, um, look at now? My PhD was, on, was within social psychology and I was looking at the effects of values on decision-making in companies. So it was actually a more HR-related context, but a lot of the, the ideas that I, um, you know, like learned or, you know, encountered during my PhD, actually, they're still relevant to some of the work that I'm doing right now in relation to COVID. And pre-COVID, what were you, <laughs> how did, what were you looking at and how did that sort of pivot once COVID um, uh, took off? I'm doing a lot of work on, on culture and uh, cultural differences. So, you know, like trying to understand like 
uh, how culture, to what extent culture actually affects um, how our brain works, how our, you know, how we think about all sorts of things, how we interact with others. And more recently, I've been looking for, you know, like a, a system that can help me or, you know, like a, a theoretical framework that can help me understand these kind of differences. And so over the last 10, 15 years, I've been working with evolutionary theories. So evolutionary thinking, um, both Darwinian thinking, as well as more recent ideas around cultural evolution to, to help me, you know, like understand, you know, like why some groups of people in certain environments do certain things in a way that sometimes seems strange to us. Mm, mm, perfect um, segue or yeah, background because that's yeah really where I want to explore. I found some of your content online really fascinating, um, and, and coupled with the papers you've published around um, evolutionary uh, psychology, the idea of values and um, why we do behaviours. And so we want to look at that in terms of COVID, obviously. Um, the moment in Australia, um, many of us are in lockdown. There's a, a you know a large spike in Sydney and potentially Melbourne. This will probably go out in about two weeks or so. So um, New Zealand, I think, gone into lockdown again, and in United States that they've opened up, but the Delta strain is going through there, and there's different um, hospitalizations, which seem to be linked to how well a state's vaccinated or not. So we wanted to look at why people. Um, choose different positions around COVID and also this idea of this parasite stress theory, how the actual threat of infection may change our values. So before we dive into all that, um, yeah, I thought maybe we could set the, the fr- maybe we could describe some of those frameworks, maybe starting evolutionary psychology. What is that and why is that important to, you know, per- people in modernity today? Right. Uh, big questions, eh? Um <laughs> Evolutionary uh, theories, why why should we care about them today, right? Um, because, you know, like a lot of people think, you know, it's something, you know, like about our past. There are different perspectives on that. Um, uh, one, one of the perspectives is that, you know, like our brain and our bodies, they were actually adapted to environments that was, you know, like about, you know, like, um, you know, like around the ice age time you know like when our bodies and our brains actually you know like we're fully kind of developed to what we are today and so therefore our living environment in, in those times with all the kind of um you know challenges and dangers and pressures that we faced influence how we approach problems today right so that is one one prominent thought in you know like classic evolutionary psychology but then there's also you know like as we we all know um, you know, like there are all these kind of uh, cultural innovations, you know, like just the fact that we can talk to each other, you know, like me being in Rio and you're over in Australia, you know, that's just an incredible feat of technology and cultural mm. innovation, right? So there has been change since, you know, the ice ages. And so how does that actually influence um, how we approach problems, how we solve problems? So there's also a, a different strand of thinking around these cultural dynamics and how they may influence how we you know like deal with issues in our contemporary environment and then obviously there there are various um ways of actually linking the two of them you know like thinking about these genetic systems that may have evolved to adapt as well to an ice age environment 
which now interacts in, in very complex ways with this kind of new cultural environment that we are creating. So, you know, there's some really exciting uh, and interesting stuff around, for example, you know, like adaptation to, um, to, you know, like lactose, lactase, you know, like mm. the milk that we're drinking um, and, and so on and so on, you know, like because different groups around the world have been, you know, like adapted differently depending on whether they had cows around or not, right? So, you know, so they're very interesting, you know, like intermediate kind of ideas um, here. Yeah. And with, um, say, evolutionary psychology, I think a lot of us think about like that sort of Darwinian, you know, natural selection of the the single you yeah. know, organism. Um, is there a piece around like, I think it's um, Jonathan Hayter recently read about this sort of groupish gene about there's a, you know, we're very tribal and um, yeah. how, how important is that um, even in today's society that we're, we, we like our in-groups and um, we'll defend our in-group status? Right. Jonathan Haid has some, I, I really like uh, some of uh, Jonathan's thinking around these issues. I do not necessarily uh, agree with uh, all the positions that he advocates for, but I, I think he's an exceptionally smart uh, person and has some 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 deep deep insights into that. And I think some of the you know like this groupish kind of thing, you know, these cliques, these kind of tribal notions. Um, if, if we think about some of the social technology, actually, that that um, seems to facilitate some of those those ideas, because we start talking to to others, other like-minded individuals, you know, like which reinforce our, you know, like um, you know, like ideas, beliefs. Mm. We do not actually have a chance to interact with others that may actually challenge our ideas. So there's there's some ideas, you know, like um, Hugo Mercier and then Sperber. They they talked about, for example, reasoning, how our reasoning capacities evolved. You know, and we seem to be very bad at you know like questioning our own beliefs, but we're very good at picking actually holes in other people's thinking right so basically reasoning might have been evolved to you know like come up with an argument that is good enough to convince me and then you know like i try and make others you know i try to convince others of my position right uh, but at the same time i don't want to be exploited by others so i'm actually much better finding holes in other people's reasoning because i don't want to be exploited or being you know like uh taken for a ride mm. but at the same time I don't want to spend too much effort on on my own thinking to convince others. You know, like so, um, a simple argument is good enough as long as it convinces others, right? So there's this kind of uh, cheater, you know, detection, you know, competition thing going on. And you know, like, if you can imagine that you now talk to mainly like-minded people, right? So you don't actually have to challenge your thoughts because it seems like other people are, you know, like already agreeing with you, and you know, like so. It, there's this kind of mechanism which kind of reinforces um, these kind of, uh, you know, like his, you know, like evolutionary tendencies in our in our modern day, you know, social media environment. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Well, it's scary in a sense how it's still really rampant today. For anything, it's with social media, it's more more divisive than ever. Um, so we'll probably yeah, hopefully come back to that. Um, so just building on that, you said you. You looked at, you've studied um, values and you described um, some different models online. 
Uh, and it might be good to describe those when we get to looking at how COVID may have may or may not change these values. So can you describe, is it the Schwartz's value model? and Is that the predominant sort of thinking? Yeah. Um, so Shalom Schwartz, he came up with a theory of, or, you know, like developed a theory of human values. Typically what we think about, I mean, people have all sorts of ideas of what human values are. So maybe we have to first think about how do psychologists or social psychologists think about values? So people like Shalom Schwartz, and uh, myself and, and a large number of people, we think about basic human values as kind of goals, motivational goals that, you know, like uh, give us an idea of what is important in our lives. So something to strive for. And so these are kind of abstract kind of uh, beliefs, goals that, you know, like uh, either indicate what is important for me to achieve or how I might achieve something, you know, like so kind of a means to an end. And um, the important thing about these values is that we can differentiate them in terms of like their motivational content, right? So there's some values that, for example, promote the well-being of others, you know, so people close to me, so my family or, you know, like other people in society that I may not know, right? So, but if I pay a lot of attention to what others need, right, um, I typically have less... um, of an opportunity or it, it kind of conflicts with me with putting myself ahead of others. Right. So it's these kind of motivations of, you know, like uh, altruistic motivations to help others often conflict with, you know, selfish um, uh, drives, motivations to basically pursue something that is good for me, but potentially hurts others. Right. So um, people talk about power values, you know, like pursuing wealth, pursuing, you know, like, getting ahead of others, achieving a higher paying job, et cetera, et cetera. So, so one uh, important difference is this kind of altruism versus, you know, like getting, getting ahead of others. Mm-hmm. And a second dimension that Schwartz um, has identified is this kind of, you know, being open to new ideas, you know, like innovation, creativity, exploring ideas, um, which is kind of a self-focused, uh, you know, like um, curiosity-driven um, motivation, which often conflicts with, you know, like paying attention to what, you know, like your traditional culture, what, you know, like your, your you know, the norms, the traditional norms of your society are all about, right? And so there can be this kind of conflict between, you know, like um, paying attention to what others are, are saying and, and conforming to those uh, expectations versus, you know, like doing what you think you want to do and, and a very kind of self-focused, curiosity-driven uh, orientation to life and, and, and what you want to do in life. And sorry, yeah, if, if that helps. Yeah, yeah, that helps. So they've got those sort of two almost spectrums. Um, so a couple of questions. They're neither sort of there's no right or wrong or good or bad, it's just the sort of your where you sit on these sort of spectrums of being open or more um conservative and likewise individualistic and collective. And um, would you say as I said it's not right or wrong, it's just where you where you sort of sit? Right. I, I think you know like um ultimately, you know, like in any kind of cultural system, you know, like uh, the way I look at it. It, it has some functionality, right? So it, it evolves in a certain environment. Historically, it has evolved uh, because of certain, you know, like uh, 
situational, you know, like economic, mm. you know, like climatic effects, right? And so within each of these systems, you know, like individuals have choices, right? So, and you know, like I, I take a relatively neutral position on this because, you know, like, you know, like ultimately individuals have to make choices and you have a spectrum along with, along which you have to make, uh, where you have to take a stance, right? And so, yeah. so you know, like uh, it's up to individuals and, and my personal, you know, like my personal moral point of view is as long as you don't hurt others, mm. uh, you know, like, um, you know, like I'm very happy to, for people to lead a life that they believe is, is worth living, right? So also as a psychologist, you know, like we have to respect other people's choices as long as those choices do not hurt uh, or, um, you know, like purposefully hurt other people. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. I think it's, for me it's more understanding like if you're open that um, other people aren't always wired the same way and um, and are conservative and, um, to the your second point, it, 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 can it be or was it adaptive um, at some point through evolution? Um, I remember I think the Robert Sapolsky speaks about in one of his books about um, the individualistic versus collective cultures where um, collectivism was really important for the, the, the um, rice farmers in Asia because they had to sort of work together, whereas the, the wheat farmers in the hills were more individualistic and that was more advantageous for those those um, people up there. So. Yeah, is there some sort of part of um, evolution where it's been more advantageous to be one one or one way or the other? Right. Um, sure. I mean the um, I mean the the work that you just cited, you know, by Talham and, and others, for example, in in in, in mainland China, um, clearly shows that you know, like you have, you know, like as a group of, of humans, you know, like if you think about it, humans are actually, you know, like we are weaklings. It's it's amazing that we actually survived so long. Mm. You know, like if you would go one on one with a chimpanzee, man, I do not give you a chance. <laughs> Even if you if you you know work out, you know, like every single day, chimpanzees are just as individuals, much much stronger. They, uh, you know, like they would rip us to part uh, to pieces, right? So, um, and so as humans, the only way we were able to survive is actually to bond together and find solutions as as a group. Um, to the problems that we encounter in our environment, right? So, and if our environment requires certain types of actions where we need to work together, like, for example, rice farming, right? So we have to dig irrigation um, mm. channels, you know, like uh, we have to, you know, like coordinate our actions to to plant and then to harvest at a certain uh, period of time. Compare that to to um, wheat farming. That is actually, you know, like you can do that on your own, right? So you d you do not have to cooperate as much. And and even though you know, like that is the interesting, um, you know, like the interesting findings by you know this group of researchers, you know, like some of these patterns actually survive today in modern societies, in in modern cities, right? So if you compare cities, even though individuals do mm. not actually um, actively participate in, in rice farming or wheat farming these days, right? But, you know, like these patterns kind of stick around and, and um, you know, like even today you can find them in, in, in people that have nothing to do with these kind of historic, you know, like agricultural forms. But, you know, like coming back to COVID, that is also a really important aspect because, you know, like as humans moved out of Africa around the world, 
um, like they encountered different environments that were sometimes higher or lower in in all sorts of parasites, diseases, you know, like um, in terms of, you know, predators. So, you know, like in some environments, it was much more beneficial for humans to actually stick together and not innovate as much, right? So mm. all human societies innovate. It's just a degree of, you know, like within, you know, like to what extent you actually, you know, allow individuals or to innovate and to what extent it is actually safe for individuals to do something um, that is kind of new or novel, right? So if you're in, in an environment where you have lots of uh, threats, right? So if you do something that has not been tested over time, right? Because that is the important idea. Um, you learn from your elders what is safe in, an, in a hostile environment. You know, like it's a good guidance uh, to actually follow their lead and, and not deviate from it. Because, you know, like um, if you deviate, you potentially get killed, right? Whereas mm -hmm. in an environment where, you know, like it's much less threatening, um, less demands um, on you to actually follow those norms and guidelines that were handed down by your elders because they have learned it the hard way, right? Um, over hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Um, so you're actually much freer to actually explore your own ideas to do things that are a little bit different. And you don't risk, to be, uh, you know, like being killed or, you know, being, you know, like uh, sick for extended periods of time. And so um, historically, environments where you had more parasites and more diseases, uh, people tend to follow their group norms more. And environments that are, you know, like safer. So you, in in the sense that you know, there's there are less um, parasites, less diseases around that that um, that are, you know, like transmitted um, through contact or through food or whatever. Um, individuals are actually much more open to, you know, exploring new things, um, you know, like trying new things, you know, innovating, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, so there are these kind of differences around the world, um, depending on where human communities are actually living, which is predicted by these kind of ecological, you know, like environmental factors. And COVID now kind of um, came in and was kind of a threat to everyone, right? And in, mm. in some communities, you know, like it may actually have, you know, like it might have been easier initially to deal with that because communities were already used to that, you know, like, okay, if new threat is coming in, um, you know, like, let's just, you know, like, play it really safe. Because, you know, like, this kind of parasite stress system has um, two components, you know, like, uh, Mark Scheller has extensively worked on this. Uh, one is the kind of reactive one, where, you know, you avoid any kind of um, disease-related or what you think might be disease-related, um, you know, like, events right so you avoid potential food that could infect you right so you you stick to things that are that are safe or you avoid individuals that that look kind of sick or you know like are sweating profusely and, and mm -hmm. so on and so on so this is the kind of immediate kind of a reaction to a potential threat but there's also a proactive system which is this kind of more you know like follow the norms of your group follow the the guidelines you know like stick to what you know so you know like conformity right and so if in these environments if for example some some 
authority figures very early, you know, like said, like, okay, new thing is coming, new threat is coming. What we're going to do right now is X, Y, and Z. Individuals were more likely to follow, right? So, and to the extent that indi those individuals in power may have followed specific guidelines, so, you know, like, um, for example, using, you know, like behavioral guidelines on, on social distancing and enforce that, individuals were much more likely to follow because it is they were socialized into systems where you have these kind of threats present already and so it's actually much it comes much more natural to actually then follow those guidelines again um, because it, it is already part and parcel of the collective system wow so I might just underscore some of that. So, yeah, when I heard about this recent, only very recently, it really um, opened my mind to this parasite stress theory. So this seems to, that the threat of infection, as I understand throughout um, evolution, is probably one of the, our biggest threats to our, our um, life. So we've evolved systems to be vigilant and employ behaviours to avoid it. Um, and on that, on this sort of openness, conservative scale, parasites that or the and when we say parasites, it's it's pathogens. It's synonym for it's not um, the multicellular parasites per se. It's just all sorts of pathogens. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're we're wired to sort of be mindful of this, and if we're um, exposed to these infections, then we become more conservative. We'll stick to our own. We are sort of um, xenophobic, like not open to new people and new ideas. Um, so that's somewhat fluid, it seems. Um, and it, but it is it the actual infection, or is it the 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 thought of infection, or is it the like it has um has it been selected for that the people who are more sort of conservative there there is a genetic predisposition for immune activation. Can is there any explanation on the sort of the plasticity or the the I don't know how fixed it is, right. I mean, pretty much all of us have this this kind of innate, you know, like reactivity to, um, you know, like stressors, right? And and you know, like in some environments, you know, like these, you know, like we have to again think about like what is actually, you know, kind of biologically genetic kind of stuff, um, processes, dynamics, and what is kind of cultural. So as far as I'm aware of it, um, I'm not sure that there are any kind of specific genes that you know like are related for example to you know like parasite stress um uh, effects you know or you know yeah. like um these you know like that would activate a system like this right but we all are you know like we we avoid food that smells terrible for example yeah. you know yeah. like that, that's kind of an innate reaction you know like uh because it's, it helps us, right? And it takes a lot of cultural training. You know, like lots of cultures around the world have food that, that is not very kind of, it's weird, right? It, it's <laughs> kind of, uh, it smells disgusting. And, you know, like you need a lot of cultural training to actually right. eat, you know, smelly tofu, you know, like rotten fish, yeah. uh, you know, you name it. There, there are lots of these cultural traditions. It takes a lot of effort to actually overcome that kind of mm. reaction of not eating it, right? Um, so on one hand, we have this, these kind of innate behavioral systems, right? These can be, you know, or innate kind of biological systems to avoid something that could potentially make us sick. 
these systems can now be activated or can be, you know, like uh, improved in a way through cultural learning, right? So like within a system, within a cultural system where you have more, you know, like of these uh, threats around, you might become you become trained to pay more attention to this, right? So right. You know, like you, you heighten your senses, your awareness of these kind of things, and then you're more likely to actually pay attention to this, right? So, so culture may actually activate this, you know, like innate system and, and you know, fine tune it. Um, so it, it's, it's this kind of interaction between these two, you know, like a biological system, you know, like a genetic biological system and a, a, and a cultural system that, you know, like work in tandem in specific environments, right? So that's that's how I would um, think about it. I, I kind of lost you. Not, what what was your initial kind of question that you asked me right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how sort of plastic is it? Is there like... Um, has there been sort of more conservative, quote unquote, sort of genes that have been passed on that make people more more sort of primed? So is it the actual in, having an infection at the time, or, or just the sort of the, the the thought or the the threat of infection? Yeah. Ah, cool. Yeah. So you know that system because we all have it, it can be activated, right? So yeah. you know, like there's these famous studies where you know you you ask undergrad students to answer some kind of simple questions about, you know, social, sexual, uh, quite often th these kind of uh, research studies are about social, sexual norms, because in addition to, you know, like, um, well, actually social, sexual behavior often comes with a lot of diseases as well, right? Mm. Um, right, so a lot of these restrictions are actually around sexual encounters, you know, like, um, and food, you know, it's typically food uh, interactions with the opposite sex and, you know, like how much risk is there involved, right? And so if there are these kind of famous studies, uh, you get students um, and you ask them a couple of questions in, in a hallway, right? And in one condition, you ask it just in a, in a standard hallway. In another condition, you ask the same kind of questions but right next to hand sanitizer. Mm. And just, you know, like the, the fact that you're now, you know, like being, you know, like subconsciously made aware of the effect of, you know, like there's a hand sanitizer here. Wow, what's going on here? You know, like, the, should I be worried about something? Already starts triggering these thoughts and makes people more cautious. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. like, these systems can be activated situationally, right? So, you have this biological system which can be you know like trained through cultural learning but it can also be activated and so it, it is kind of contingent in a way on, on a lot of different factors so the same thing you know like for example some individuals who right now thinking for example about covid again um these contingencies can also be at the individual level. So, you know, like um, I'm here in, in, in Brazil and, and Bolsonaro very famously said, like, I'm an athlete, I won't get sick, right? So, you know, mm. if, if you have a very, if, 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 if you're healthy, for example, you may downplay any kind of risks, right? So, you know, so you may feel like you're invulnerable, for example, right? On the other hand, if you already have like um, a fragile immune system, you're more likely to pay attention to, yeah. you know, your doctor's advice or, you know, like a, a health official, right? So, you know, there are also these individual differences um, 
between individuals, you know, like in terms of like how healthy they are, how fit they are, you know, like how vulnerable they feel. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's all, we call that research about um, odors as well. I think they sprayed some like sort of rubbish smell and asked yeah. asked people um, questions and become they'd become more conservative in their thoughts if they they can yeah, sense yeah. they get that that triggers that sort of disgust and they yeah. want to yeah. yeah become conservative. All right, so let's yeah focus um, more on COVID. Now we've sort of said a <laughs> you've probably just um, explained you know your whole career of research and. Twenty minutes or so, so I appreciate that. Um, so you've, you've looked at values in COVID. So that, uh, if I get this correct, um, you had measured in, also in Australia in particular um, our sort of our baseline collective values around openness and so forth, and then COVID um, emerged, and you retested over several occasions to see if there's a a shift in um, in our uh, values, maybe um, supporting this sort of parasite stress theory that we become a little bit more conservative. Is that correct? And um, well, can you explain the, the study and the research you've done? Sure. Um, yeah, so this is really a study that is, you know, like um, was done in collaboration with Julie Lee at uh, University of Western Australia. So she has an ongoing study, uh, a panel study following Australians um, over the last couple of years. So uh, we had a lot of data already going back to 2017, right? And so when COVID hit, um, we had the unique opportunity to first in, in March uh, last year, we had the opportunity to follow uh, or ask uh, participants again about their values. And then we followed them up uh, a smaller group um, up again in around November, December. So, you know, like um, as Australians, we're actually, you know, feeling pretty safe um, in terms of of, um, the COVID threat, right? And so we asked, you know, like over the years, we have been asking them, you know, like about what is important for them, you know, what are the important values for individuals? And what we found, you know, like there are a couple of interesting trends um, over this over these these years, right? And if I just focus right now on the COVID-specific ones, you know, like just as a broad kind of picture mm. um, snapshot um, approach, uh, what we can see is that, you know, like security values. So, you know, be you know, like these kind of conservative values feeling, um, you know, putting more emphasis on security in your life really shot up and stayed up even, you know, like later on, um, late uh, last year when actually the threat of COVID seemed to have, you know, was was fading, right? Um, and, you know, like on the other hand, these kind of curiosity, you know, like stimulation-related re- values, you know, like those kind of self-directed values that I uh, talked about earlier on, they kind of dropped, Right. So it's really, you know, like in line with this kind of parasite stress theory, if you have, you know, like an acute stressor. Right. So individuals just tend to become more cautious. They become a little bit more conservative. um, And at the same time, they kind of, you know, dial down these kind of self um, oriented kind of uh, curiosity driven stimulation oriented uh, motivations in their lives. 
Um, and also, you know, another thing that we, we observed is that actually uh, the concern for others in general also mm. kind of, you know, like became less important, right? So the interesting thing here is um, this is also related to some work in, along the parasite stress uh, idea that, you know, like you become much more concerned about your own survival, right? And become much less concerned about the well-being of others, especially if those others are, you know, like people in general uh, within your society, right? So those kind of ideas um, or, you know, like motivations to care for others also kind of dropped overall. So in line with parasite stress theory, it kind of, you know, like increased conservative, especially security-related um, orientations, and it kind of decreased you know, like these self-oriented um, stimulation, you know, like hedonistic um, orientations in people's lives. Wow. Um, so it's really interesting how, how the, the perception of COVID can change. It, may, it makes a lot of sense with the parasite stress theory. Um, so, yeah, a couple of questions there. I'm, I'm, I want to dive into more now the differences, the variability, I suppose. Um, this is where we're getting maybe into those sort of those um, tribalism areas that you spoke of in the, um, earlier that um, I'm wondering if, yeah, the evolutionary psychology or the cultural theory can help explain how we sort of, you know, choose a position on COVID and get into these controversial areas like we're seeing now that people are opposing lockdown, um, some people adopted, you know, wearing masks earlier and then there's the whole, you know, split and contention around vaccines. Um so, yeah, a couple of questions, I suppose, are that, um, you know, America's obviously very sort of polarised, but it's a maybe it's a good case study uh, to mm. test this sort of parasite stress theory and maybe I'm way off track, but, like, um, you know, with the conservatives, then, then like, so Donald Trump came out first saying that maybe trivialising the, the, um, the infection. How does that reconcile? And people obviously doubling down mm. who follow that tribe, um, how does that reconcile the parasite stress theory? Because shouldn't they be more worried about infection? Or is there also that threat about that dualism about the threat to sort of um, the economy, you know, um, hence why those people are a bit more um, vocal about sort of maintaining an open economy and so forth. So, right. yeah, can, can that <laughs> does any yeah. of the... the um, the, the things that unfold the past couple of years um, can be explained by the parasite stress theory? Right. You, you're asking really tough questions here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm probably oversimplifying, trying to th think of a unifying yeah. theory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, parasite stress theory doesn't really care much about economics. Let's let's put it this way, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, it, you know, like... One thing we have to, you know, like maybe, you know, like uh, put at, at the outset here is that, you know, like uh, if we think about, for example, economic systems, right? So what is good for the economy versus what is good for the individual interest? Um, you know, like from an evolutionary perspective, you have to kind of rephrase that in terms of like, you know, like immediate kind of group survival. Uh, yeah. And, you know, like um, there, um there's i forgot his first name right now um will um will come back to me but there's a a danish um 
uh, evolutionary psychologist. Uh, his last name is Bank Peterson, and he has he has made really good comments about this. You know, like a lot of these kind of big political debates that we're having right now, they're not well connected to these kind of uh, long, you know, like standing problems that our mind is actually really well attuned to right so immediate group survival right so if you start talking about democracy if you start talking about uh economics big economic questions you know that is really really hard to grasp for a lot of people and it actually becomes much easier if you start phrasing some things in 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 kind of quote-unquote tribal coalitional kind of terminology right so um so that that is one of the interesting arguments uh, by Bank Peterson in terms of you know like in like rethinking how we talk about politics and and how it actually aligns with you know like how evolutionary speaking we we worry about you know like things in our environment right so we need to to sometimes you know like rephrase that to connect it with concerns that may evolutionary be uh, more salient right. They play a role, obviously, right? But um, they they often are you know, like connected in ways that is sometimes a little bit opaque. Um, so so that is is a first thought here. And then you know, like a second thought is that if we think about, for example, these science um, these science driven approaches right now, um, it, it's actually astonishing if you look at the evidence from the spanish flu in 1918 Mm. right we are making the same mistakes again there are really amazing case studies um from you know like 1918 uh about how you can can contain it we have really good evidence about sars what can actually help us contain it um you know like so there are excellent case studies of you know like what are the kind of behavioral steps if we want to, you know, like, and th- this is the important kind of moral question here. If we want to stop the spread of a virus, what do we have to do? Mm. We know what to do, right? But it, 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 it comes down to um, kind of a moral question, whether, you know, like politicians think it is worth for them to actually pursue that because it comes at a cost, right? It comes at a political cost. And, and yeah. you know, like that, that is where it comes, you know, like ultimately comes down to where do you put uh, the cost in terms of lives lost or, you know, like individual, quote unquote, individual freedom. Because, it, you know, like philosophically speaking, you know, like what is individual freedom, right? Uh, but, you know, like where, where do you put, you know, like um, the emphasis at the end of the day? Mm. And so, um, you know, like the what I think has happened, for example, with COVID again, you know, right? We know what is what could work because we've seen it with SARS, we have seen it with uh, MERS, and and so on. We have seen it with Ebola, um, but the political leaders have to endorse these kind of activities. And if they don't see, you know, like that, they can get political capital out of this, they may not do it, right? So, and now with you know, like um, an open flow of information, right? So, for example. In New Zealand, in Australia, you can opt for a certain strategy that may seem reasonable in order to stamping out the virus, right? So if every country had done, you know, like the same thing, we wouldn't be dealing with COVID right now, right? So mm. we would be de- we would we would be looking back at it as if it was SARS, for example, 
which was actually stamped out relatively quickly because um, governments took these kind of approaches and contained the virus relatively quickly, right? Um, but now, obviously, now you have some places where, you know, like one approach was taken and some places where another approach was taken. And you have information flowing openly between all these different groups, uh, which now obviously incites people at both ends of the spectrum um, and, and points fingers, you know, like, ah, look, they have done this and look what happened or mm. look, they have done that and look what has happened. And then obviously with all these kind of biases that we have, we, we tend to focus on only confirming evidence for our perspective, you know, like th this kind of Hugo Mercer, Dan Sperber kind of idea that our reasoning actually evolved to, to convince others and, and poke holes at other people's arguments, but not actually critically really engage with our own fallacies and our thinking, right? So it's actually much easier to, to spot, to, to pay attention to what confirms my views and put holes, you know, poke holes into your theory, right? So, you know, so we have these kind of very complex dynamics going on um, at the same time. So we have um, our human mind, which has a certain kind of uh, orientation to solve problems, to think about um, group problems, which may not align well with these kind of very abstract discussions. Uh, we have political leaders that may have one orientation versus another orientation and see political capital in one or another political choice. And then people rally around these kind of ideas. And, you know, like you get very strong, you know, like motivated actions at both ends. And it comes down to the individual, what, you know, like um, what you think is right or wrong. I have my personal opinion on it. I think that <laughs> inspired already. Um but, you know, like ultimately it, it becomes, you know, like a, a moral question. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So I want to try and stick with that. Um, and yeah, really dip my tie in a controversial water, particularly for my audience or our audience here. I think the natural therapies is, um, you know, the COVID, uh, COVID, COVID vaccine and, and, and the vaccine hesitancy. And again, not to sort of, you know, choose a side, but more to look at, um, how we can form, you know, what side we, we land on. Um, just as a bit of a background, yeah, I think in Australia that um, that obviously the, the government's trying to get the vaccine rate up to around 70% or so. Um, it's slowly getting there, but there's still a fair bit of hesitancy um, from surveys around maybe 20, 30%. Um, we've done a few little um, surveys amongst our practitioners and, and this was at start of the year around March or something and vaccine hesitancy was around about 70%. Um, and, yeah, when you, you do get down to the tribalisms, there's you're probably right, there's, um, you know, each, each side picking holes and the other side's argument. And yeah, I don't want to be sort of looking at the arguments, but more about um, how people land at their um, position as you have discussed and there's been a recent Australian study published on looking at factors on vaccine hesitancy and I know mm. you're not completely familiar with it and this is more sort of speculation but maybe you can sort of rattle off some of the the factors that are linked to hesitancy or being supportive um, and maybe if you have any comments or you know um, thoughts if it fits any of the sort of models or, or can explain it so what have we got those who are hesitant um, sort of felt that COVID was overstated. Um, we have that sort of more populist, which is sort of the, is it like the little people versus the elite type of view? 
Um, more religio- religiosity, um, which I'll probably speak about, is that like absolute religion or is it more that sort of tribalism? And where um, those who are supportive of the, the vaccine um, were obviously no surprise more likely to follow the, the guidelines like social distancing, download the COVID safe app, um, have more confidence in the hospitals and government and maybe a, a marker of that sort of openness to change with more supportive like migration that sort of um you know the the uh, open to more outside sort of ideas so um i know it's sort of a, a mixed bag but any sort of you know from your your um training and education and area of interest anything that sort of jumps out that you can get a signal about the sort of how we sort of land in on these decisions right i mean um, maybe as a first point I, I think, you know, like the COVID vaccines um, or the whole uh, awareness of about how vaccines are being developed is actually, you know, has good and bad sides. You know, um, I, I think there's actually a lot of positive uh, development because how often before have you worried about, you know, like if, if, if you went to, to see your doctor and, and, and your GP said, like, you have to get this vaccine. How many times did you actually question or, you know, like, mm. how was that tested? You know, like, is it safe? You know, um, I think it's actually amazing how much education has, a, how has, how much education has happened over the last year and a half. Yes. Yeah, um, and, you know, like the literacy, health literacy, I think actually increased because people started questioning, um, you know, like, a lot of things, you know, like started getting engaged. So I think at some level, this is actually a very positive development. Um, the downside of it is it also has opened, you know, like the the playing field for politics, uh, you know, to, mm. to play politics with it, you know, right? So, you know, it's, it's a good thing that, you know, like people are aware of it, that they care. The bad thing is it kind of gets now involved or packaged or, you know, like, dragged into a political field, political debates, right? So um, I, I see positive sides and there's also a lot of danger. Um, now, thinking about this Australian study, obviously they didn't they didn't um, measure values, right? So yep. they measured a couple of um, variables that we regularly measure in, in psychology and sociology, political science, and we can make some kind of uh, we can draw some kind of implications by association because these variables are pretty well studied. Uh, we know how they correlate, for example, with motivational systems like values. So what we can take away from from um, this recent study is, you know, through the effects that you, you that or through the the patterns that you mentioned, for example, those individuals um, that said the, you know religion is much more important to them these individuals also typically tend to endorse more conservative traditional values right so which again you know like um could be looked at from a parasite stress uh, perspective on the other hand you have uh, these these uh questions you know like you mentioned populism also tends to somewhat either relate to these kind of egoistic self-centered you mm. know like uh, power values or some variations of you know like these kind of um 
uh, again, variations of uh, conservative kind of values. You know, like I put all of this in, in quotation marks here because, you know, like people often, you know, like if, if I talk to a general audience, people often then immediately identify themselves with this and get uh, upset. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. As researchers, you know, like we have to give things certain names and then we have to also recognize that, you know, like uh, people uh, in general may use those names slightly differently. So, you know, like I'm, I'm talking about um, motivational orientation, so values in the way that we study them uh, in psychology. So what we can see, I think, in that study is that we have this kind of um, liberal openness versus conservative conformity, traditional kind of motivation uh, difference. And I think this is, again, where it comes back to political leadership, um, where certain um, polls within society, because, you know, like vaccines have been endorsed by very conservative politicians in, in, in the past. It, but, you know, like it always happened within a a specific political context and this time around with COVID with all these other questions that come with it um, conservative politicians tended to have downplayed COVID uh, de-emphasized the importance of vaccines um, you know like being here in Brazil I mean I'm surrounded by by this on a, on a daily basis where the president uh, which is very much on a very kind of uh, conservative mm. um Spect, you know, very conservative at the very conservative end is downplaying ridiculing, uh, ridicules um, health professionals, uh, the vaccines, etc. etc. So, you know, right. like, uh, it, it was kind of, um, I think, in a very unfortunate uh, happenstance that you know, like the vaccines and, and these health issues became enrolled, embroiled in, in political debates. Uh, in this particular case, because in other situations, you know, like conservative uh, politicians have endorsed uh, health guidelines, um, vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, like something happened very early on during COVID, which aligned these positions with political orientations and, and motivational orientations. Mm. All right. <laughs> That's a big one to um, a can of worms we open and we'll... Um, we might move on, but I suppose, yeah, I just want to get a bit of a lay of the land and try and understand, get a sense of, and you're right, it's like I'm mindful that we're talking about the, this is the mean, the average, and people may choose to vaccinate or not on, on different um, parameters, but just to go and get a bit of a profile of where people sit. Um, and I might, I'll come back to that in a sense about, or actually while we're here, like, you mentioned earlier, like we don't necessarily use sort of, is it, you know, rationale to to form our opinions, but we probably use rationale to to sort of fire back at the other side. I'm just curious, moving forward, and you're saying that education, um, whether it's vaccines or anything, I suppose, education has a benefit. But is there a limitation, like if you can't sort of, if we make decisions our or values on not just pure sort of, you know, rational thought. Um, is there a limit to like just simple education on things? Are there, are there better ways of like trying to, um, you know, address sort of public health issues? Right. 
this is again you know, like one of those uh <laughs> if i would have an answer you know i would run for like world presidency yeah sure <laughs> um like what i like is some experiments that have happened in in europe you know like coming back to some of the points that we discussed very early on in, in our conversation here about social media and, and social media bubbles right these days it's actually very easy to talk to people that agree with you on, on either end of uh, the political spectrum or, or on any kind of issue, actually, you know, mm. because we have all these interest groups uh, and it's easy to actually um, get involved with these interest groups. So in Europe, there, there have been a couple of experiments, um, actually large scale society level experiments where people invited uh, or, you know, politicians and researchers invited individuals from opposing ends of a p particular issue to actually come and talk to each other in person and you know like try and understand you know like what's actually the motivation of the person at the other end um, and i think this is also the contribution that i think value research is doing that we we try and actually uh, identify you know like motivational positions on issues why some individuals may actually endorse a certain position versus another position uh, to help people actually reflect on that and, and think through some of these issues, um, maybe from the other person's angle. And, you know, like, because, you know, like, I'm an optimist. So, you know, I actually think, you know, like, there's always opportunity for, for positive change that helps us move forward, right? Um, and so, you know, like, I, I, I think, you know, like, by highlighting for example these motivational differences in political debates or around vaccines or you name it right so any kind of behavioral guidelines if you think about health uh, uh, decision making health policies right so highlighting the motivational foundations of this may actually incentivize people or you know may help them to actually start thinking how does my uh the, the, the person that I'm arguing with here see this issue, you know, like how can I help others, you know, like to actually increase empathy? That's what it comes mm. down to, you know, like perspective taking, seeing the issue from the other uh, person's end. Uh, and, and by doing that, I think there's actually uh, a great space for compromise. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's actually, you know, like where I see, you know, some of my research hopefully contributing, you know, like by, um, highlighting these motivational issues around these debates helping people to actually step outside their shoes for a second and, and see it from the other person's perspective which hopefully then you know like helps people to to find some common ground uh, and some agreement around common interests yeah yeah i agree yeah because i think everyone's got the best interests at heart of um you know being safe and healthy it's just we obviously sometimes have completely different views on how to get there and yeah i really um resonate with the idea of understanding the, the person despite if they hold a different opinion to yours not always easy to do um i'm sure we could talk about that forever but you've also done um i just want to cover off one other bit of research you've done and i don't want to minimize this because it's a meta-analysis um on covid um maybe slightly different we haven't really covered off the foundation here but i can let you do that um so you've also done a meta-analysis on predicting behavioral intentions around COVID and this is looking at um, numerous studies 
Um, so I'll just leave it open and you can um, run a run with it. So can you describe the, the recent meta-analysis you um, have published? Right. We did, um, you know, like quite early on, I was intrigued, you know, like because in, in psychology, we have a couple of theories and in, in psychology health uh, research, we have a couple of theories about what motivates um, health behavior, right? So one of the most widely used theories is the theory of planned behavior, which presumes, first of all, that people have intentions to perform a behavior, right? And we can predict, um, you know, like when people form certain intentions to, you know, like behave in a, in a healthy way or not, right? And so predictors or, you know, like things that influence whether we actually plan to do something or not include whether we have a positive attitude towards um, the behavior, whether uh, we believe others actually agree with us doing it, right? So subjective norms, and also whether we feel competent to perform the behavior, right? So yeah. this is technically called perceived behavioral control or sometimes also self-efficacy, right? So we have we have attitudes, we have subjective norms, and we have this kind of um, efficacy um, belief, right? Whether we can actually perform the action or not. And previous research uh, suggested that attitudes and uh, these beliefs that we can perform the action are actually most important for changing people's behavior, right? So increasing the intentions and then the intentions basically flowing through uh, in, into kind of healthy behavior changes. Um, but at the same time, very early on, what I noticed was that, you know, like obviously with these very marked differences, you know, like New Zealand, Australia uh, on one end, the US, UK on the other end, you know, like you, you seem to have these kind of normative differences of how uh, leaders and then populations were actually um, dealing with this. And so I was curious whether, you know, like, for example, the subjective norm aspect would play a role here, right? And um, late last year or, you know, like uh, in, in the second half of last year, just by, you know, like accident one evening, I was thinking like, I wonder if there's been any research on this already. And, and it turned out actually, it's amazing. Again, one of those amazing things about COVID, um, there has been so much research on, on, on society level issues um, and it, it has become available very quickly, you know? So that's also, I think, one of the really positive effects of, of COVID as, as, as bizarre as it sounds, you know, like um, there has been a tremendous amount of research around issues that are of relevance to society. And it, this research has been made available very quickly, right? So I saw that there have been all these studies on, on the theory of plant behavior and whether people actually followed health guidelines or not, and later on also whether they intended to take uh, the vaccines or not. And so uh, together with uh, Johannes Karl, which was my PhD student, now he's a lecturer at Victoria University, um, we decided let's have a look at this and, and see, you know, like what, what kind of patterns do we find in this specific COVID case? And it turns out that actually norms uh, were much more important than in previous research. You know, that's why right. I also think, you know, like um, COVID in some ways is actually kind of a different type of uh, beast, right, compared to other health um, challenges that we have faced in the past for all sorts of reasons, right? So so we realized that um, 
subjective norms were actually much more important. And also the the level of endorsement within your community. So it was not just what you thought others were thinking, but what everyone else was thinking, right? So there was this kind of ramping up. Um, so if you were embedded in a community where everything, you know, everyone thought it's important to do, you know, like for example, social distancing, and you also thought it was important to social distancing, then you like there was this kind of reinforcing effect and people were more likely to follow. Uh, on the other hand, in communities where, you know, like there was a lot of disbelief or, you know, like uh, some people were for, some people were against it, then, you know, like if you thought it was important, you were actually much less likely to act on it, right? So there was this kind of reinforcing, you know, like um, effect between, you know, individuals and what was going on in the community. And we also then found all these, you know, like really interesting patterns, you know, globally of, you know, like how these variables play out in predicting whether people will actually follow uh, behavioral guidelines uh, are willing to take the, the vaccines or not right so it it was a very interesting uh project which really you know like happened like one evening me sitting down and then finding all these studies and then we did a more systematic search and you know like combined all these these studies and then found these very interesting patterns Wow. So just on the, the social norms, you're saying that that typically isn't as, wasn't as strong of a factor in previous studies or research or pandemics even. Um, and the social norms are like like what's happening in our group and um, society and culture. Um, so do you think it's COVID-specific that's driven uh, contributed to that, that that's been, um, been a factor? Or is it part of this sort of day and age of these divisions because of maybe social media or something like any any thoughts there i think you know like one issue that is somewhat you know like because previous research typically has focused on very individual focused health behaviors right so like whether you know like you 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 exercise whether you have you you eat a more healthy diet whether you know like you do some, you know, like you take a certain kind of uh, medication or not, right? So it was very much always focused on the individual, right? And so what the, you know, whether you thought it was actually good for you, so attitudes, and whether you thought you were able to do it, so, you know, mm-hmm. your safe behavioral control were actually much more important for the behavior, right? But COVID right now, you know, even though there was a risk to individuals, right? Ultimately, it was kind of a, a collective action problem because, you know, like, through my actions, I reduce my own risk, but I also protect others. Yeah. Right. So it, it kind of shifts, you know, like the whole kind of um, reasoning around it because all of a sudden, you know, like the behavior that I'm performing or decide not to perform, um, I, I suddenly make a statement in terms of like whether I want to protect others that are vulnerable in my environment or not, right? So all of a sudden, you know, like, I think these these norms, you know, like what others, you know, think about you doing became much more important. Okay. And um, with that, from my um, uneducated understanding of the, the data, uh, that you looked at like individualism and collectivism of, of nations and I'll point in Australia, New Zealand and US primarily because that's our bulk of our audience but I, I did notice that um from my understanding 
on compared to the rest of the world, we're probably above average in those three nations on individualism. So would that mean that this could explain why there is some sort of, I suppose, dissent <laughs> amongst, you know, public health campaigns? Right, yeah. Um, you know, like I had a very, you know, like because, you know, like we had so many studies, right? And one of the things that I personally often do is, you know, like I try uh, – when I look at these kind of uh, data, I try not look at, you know, like specific issues, places, individuals, right. because, you know, like, um, then I may form all sorts of, you know, like hypotheses, right? Yeah. So I often, you know, like try and look at it, you know, like as hopefully objective and neutral as possible, right? So I had a very quick look before, you know, like our discussion, you know, and, and for example, Australia, I think we had maybe four studies if i remember correctly mm -hmm. and the effects there you know like the 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 ability of the theory to predict behavior was actually not as strong as in some other contexts right. right so the you know like you're absolutely right you know like australians similar to you know like uh people in the us canada you know like various parts around the english-speaking world um they're much more focused on, you know, self-focused, uh, individualistic, you know, which again, you know, like I, I look at it in a neutral way, you know, because there are positive and negative sides mm, to, to exactly. every kind of um, position on any kind of continuum, right? Um, and so that may actually reduce the effectiveness of that theoretical framework for predicting uh, behavior in relation to COVID at this moment. Right. And just finally, so you looked at tightness and looseness as well What um, of nations. So yeah, I suppose two questions. Was there a correlation between like gen not just the countries I pointed out, but is there a spectrum of individualism and collectivism? And then what's tightness and looseness and what did you find yeah. there? What the heck is that all about? Right? <laughs> Uh, tightness looseness is actually you know like um that is a nice segue back to parasite stress theory um because tightness looseness is the idea that you have some cis, you know cultural systems so societies uh, or communities that are much um they have much stronger norms so they're tighter in the sense of like you have very specific rules and norms around behavior and they're very strongly enforced, right? And typically this happens in environments where you have more threat, right? So where parasite stress is, stress is higher, where you have more a higher likelihood of natural disasters and, and so on and so on. On the other hand, loose societies are, it's actually a concept that comes from anthropology, right? Um, loose societies are typically societies where you have more freedom, they're less, uh, tightly regulated norms around all sorts of things mm -hmm. so you know like um and if there are norms you can actually easily break them without being you know like arrested or you know like frowned upon you know try and, and cross um a red light in germany for example it's always the example of, um you know people will stare at you you can cross it even, right. but people will stare at you uh, cross a red light in singapore and you might get arrested right so you know, like there, there are different um gradients of you know, like rules and regulations and to what extent they are actually being enforced and, and um, yeah, 
you, you might be fined, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so um, the idea here is in, in environments where you have more stress, parasite stress, ecological stress, et cetera, et cetera, you typically have more tighter societies. And what we found is um, tight societies, that's also a paper by Michel Gelfand that was published in The Lancet um, a few months ago, tight societies dealt with COVID much better at the, on, at the, at the onset of, of the pandemic, right? Because um, these societies were used to threats coming in. Uh, you had very tight regulations. People are more likely to follow norms. So if somebody actually said, like, we have to do X, Y, and Z, people were likely to do it because they were afraid of breaking the norms, being fined, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, like, it was, was much easier to actually uh, control the virus very early on. Um, so, you know, like, there, there were some advantages of this very tight um, cultural system, in a way, for controlling um, the spread of, of, of COVID early on in, in the pandemic. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And maybe, um, yeah, not explain, but I'm mindful of when people sort of say, look at this nation, how they're doing it right or wrong and vice versa. Um, there's probably a lot of variables that, that you know, um, affect whether people comply or, or how the, the, the nation responded or, you know, were affected or not by, by COVID. Um so you've just gone deep into that meta-analysis. Um, so just to sort of step out of that, like, yeah, what's your, can you just sort of conclude or what's a takeaway from that or or um, where's, where's this going to lead you in the future with your research? Right. Um, well, again, here, quite the question. <laughs> um, I, I think the, one of the main takeaways, you know, like, for health professionals is that, you know, like we have relevant theories, like the theory of planned behavior. Um, uh, there's the health belief model, which is another kind of theory that has been used extensively. And, you know, like they provide good guidance of how we can, for example, frame health messages uh, for people to actually act on um, and, and, you know, like improve their own health or the health of their loved ones. Right. So one takeaway message uh, from our meta-analysis on, on, on that particular theory in the context of COVID is actually um, that we, we have to pay more attention to, to norm effects, right? So help people, you know, like think about what others are thinking and how their action actually impacts on others, right? right. Yeah. So, you know, like this is probably one of the main messages for, you know, like health professionals. And, you know, like, obviously for researchers, there are all sorts of additional um, messages in terms of, like, how we can improve our theories, you know, like, uh, because there, we found a couple of unexpected findings uh, in relation to previous theories, you know. So, actually, there there's a lot of stuff that us researchers need to do, you know. We have to engage with real-world issues uh, and, and think more carefully about how our theories play out in different environments. And, and so, you know, this kind of collective action issue of, of COVID, you know, like where our actions actually affect everyone in the community, I think it's a, it's a very interesting theoretical question that hasn't really been taken up by researchers that much. Okay, yeah. Well, um, we've covered a lot today. Um, hopefully, <laughs> um, you know, we've... we've uh, as an amateur of help navigate through this area, I'm, I'm sure we'll 
hopefully uh, I can do some more of this in the future and and learn more. Um, for those who are yeah probably less familiar with these sort of concepts, if people had more of an interest to, to learn more, any sort of um, suggestions on resources or, or pathways to to find out more? Cool. Yeah. Sure. Um, um, you know, like I do occasional, you know, like little blogs on 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 YouTube. Um, feel free to also send me a message. You know, like if you want to uh, talk to me in particular, I'm happy to send you some some uh, information. And you know, like uh, if you know, ask me. I, I would have to think about you know, like um, some specific resources. But I mean, the first thing is like. Uh, talk to to other health professionals. Um, you know, like probably you know the main takeaway message is you know like talk to each other, try and understand each other's perspectives first of all. Um, and if you're interested in specific research, you know, like feel free to actually message me. Uh, have a look at um, my YouTube channel, and you know, like um, message me there, and I put. For example, all the links to all the studies in relation to COVID that I use in my uh, presentations, uh, I put them up there as well. So feel free to, to read up on that. And um, yeah, I, I think, you know, like, again, the engagement between, you know, like the general public and, and researchers has actually really improved during COVID. So feel free, you know, if, if you find something interesting on the internet, just feel free to send an email to, to researchers. They're often very happy to respond. Perfect. Thank you. Um, yeah, we'll maybe chat more and we can put a few more links in the, the show notes. But, I, um, yeah, I really appreciate your time and your experience and knowledge and, and be able to translate such a, a, a tough but really important um, topic. So thanks again, Ron. I know you've um, got a young one and you're um, on uh, paternity leave. So I really appreciate you taking your time out of your day and evening to, to speak to myself and the audience. No, it was an absolute pleasure. And, yeah, I hope I... I help to translate some of those often very abstract uh, academic theories into something that people can relate to. So thanks a lot for the opportunity. My pleasure. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.